I was right left. Hi guys. Um, it's a privilege to be up here and a little bit scary. <laughs> it's great to see so many faces though. This is amazing. Um, so as Ian said, today I'm going to be speaking on, um, continue um, our study through um, First Samuel, well First and Second Samuel. Um, and I'm going to be speaking on chapters five and six today. The past few weeks we've been looking at the story of Samuel and the story of the Israelites. Um, and Ian last week brilliantly spoke on chapter four and how the Israelites were in pursuit of their own glory, how they were abusing the, the power and the presence of God and, um, and his temple and um, really just living their own ways. They'd completely um, kind of forgotten what it was like to actually be children of the living God um, and were just pursuing their own um, desires. And they were going to, they went into battle with the Philistines um, and they realized very quickly that they weren't doing very well. And so they thought, an idea. We have the presence of the mighty God over there. Let's bring him in. He will surely help us win. Um, but as we heard, they were defeated. And not only were they defeated and lost many men, but the presence of God was removed from them. Um, this is the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the, the presence of God, um, was stolen and captive, um, and taken captive by the Philistines and taken into their land. Um, and the Ark was one of the most important representations of, of God's promises to the Israelites. Um, he was their one true God, and he, they were his people. Um, and they knew that in having the presence of God there, that they would be protected, that, you know, God would help them win battles and so on. And so when that didn't happen, I can only imagine that there was a lot of despair. You, you'd not only lose half of your army, but you also lose the God who protects and looks after them. Like, surely that's got to be a, a moment of freaking out um, for the Israelites. Um, but just like it looked like they'd been defeated, God had a plan. God always has a plan, doesn't he? Um, the holy presence was removed from the Israelites and taken into Dagon's temple. Um, Dagon was one of um, Philistine's many gods. Um, they saw him as one of you know, the highest deity, and they considered him to be the god of success. So they went to him when you know, they wanted to succeed in things. Um, and so the presence of God was taken into the temple of Dagon and set before him. Um, and although this looked like a defeat, um, Peter Lethus put it brilliantly when he said, um, Afpec was the site of defeat. So Afpec was where the Israelites and the Philistine had had that battle. The same way that Golgotha, um, where Jesus was crucified, was the place of defeat. This discovery, though, or we're going to get into in a wee second, of what happened to Dagon was simply let me read it word for word. <laughs> this discovery um, was a foreshadowing of what happened to Jesus. So we'll find out what happens in just a wee second. Um, so we're going to read from um, 1 Samuel chapter 5. Um, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7. We're not going to read the whole two chapters today because otherwise that will take um, my entire time, which I would much prefer that, but Ian said I couldn't do that, so we're not going to just <laughs> read the word today. Um, but from verse 1 to 7, it says this, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod. 
Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple of Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and his vicinities. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? I think what I find quite interesting is that when they captured the ark, they put it before their God thinking, yes, we've defeated the Israelites. This is the, these are the same people who, you know, the, their God afflicted the Egyptians with plagues um, to set them free. And yet here is his, this God of theirs before our God as sitting there as a trophy. We have defeated them. Amazing. But then they wake up the next morning and their God has fallen face down on the floor. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I worshipped a God that I had to pick up and dust off, I'd be thinking, oh, a bit of an issue here. But yeah, that's what they do. They pick him back up, put him back in his throne and say, right, okay, no, this is our God. That was just an accident. Day two, we wake up early in the morning, go to see that God, and there he is. This time he's not just fallen face down, but he is broken. His head is cut off, his hands cut off. And if we look back, I mean, my mom loves watching um, these old Roman films, like so old school, filmed in the 60s. It's kind of semi-black and white. But a lot of these films, when there's a battle, there's always a battle, um, and you know a side has won, they'll capture the enemy and chop their head off as a sign of victory. So here was Dagon, fallen on the ground with his chep- head chopped off. I mean, if that's not a sign to the Philistines that God was doing something, then I don't know what is. God displayed his glory at that moment, displayed his power to the Philistines without an army, without a sword, without using anybody. He just displayed his own glory. And surely, again, that would have been an excuse for the Philistines or a reason for the Philistines to turn around and say, okay, there is something seriously wrong with the God we worship. This God of the Israelites has power so much power that he has just destroyed our God. But instead of doing that, they just say, no, it's fine. We'll just leave him face down. And then what we'll do is we'll just step over the threshold that he fell into. We'll just, we'll just keep to him. Because actually turning to the God of Israel required them to say, wait a minute, we're wrong. There, were pride, there was pride in their hearts. And actually, they weren't willing to turn around and accept that God of the Israelites was the God of power. And as I mentioned, I started the quote quote by Peter um, Letha earlier. He said, this discovery of Dagon the second time round occurred early the next morning, about the time of Israel's morning sacrifice. And Dagon was apparently joining with Israel in prostrating himself before the throne of God of gods. Early in the morning, the Philistines went to Dagon's temple, expecting to find a defeated God, but he was not there. 
He had risen. Yahweh lives. And the day of the Philistines had hoped would be the day of Dagon turned out to be the day of Yahweh. God showed his mighty power to the Philistines. And that's just a reminder and a foreshadowing of God, what God will do with Jesus. That I'd imagine the disciples, the day that Jesus was crucified, felt very similar. Our God has been defeated. But we know that that's not the end of the story. But how true is that of us today? As we think about the Philistines having witnessed the power of God and his hand on them, not just in Ashdod, but all over their land they experienced the power of God, yet still decided to worship meaningless idols. Today, we don't have idols the same way. You don't always see statues of people worshiping, but there's maybe things in our lives that we're putting before God, that we're devoting our time to, that we're setting into a place where God belongs. We're enthroning these things into our lives over God. I know for myself, there have been moments where I've put my own desires over what God has wanted for me. I've put my own wants and my own passions and I've said, no, but it's good. It's good for me to be passionate about this. This is great for me. God wants the best for me. But yeah, I've been so focused on that that I've put aside God himself. I remember a couple of years ago, I got really into, it sounds a bit silly, but heavy lifting. I was well into it. I was getting really strong. I was loving it. Um, and I'd get up every morning at 5.30 and I'd go to the gym. I was just on my element getting stronger. I would look at other, other like heavy lifters and I'm like, oh, I want to be like that. This is amazing. But then I would do that. No bother. 5.30 in the morning every day. But if somebody had said, oh, do you want to meet up to pray at seven in the morning? I'm like, oh, seven in the morning. Can we not, can we not do it later? Yeah. Waking up early to pray and worship God and read my Bible seemed like a huge effort. And I felt really convicted by that after a while that actually, although it seems a bit strong to say that the gym became my God, it became where I devoted my time, my efforts, my thoughts, my passion. That became what I worshipped. That became the center of my life and not God. And I believe that as followers of Christ, we are called to pick up our cross. We are called to worship God because we have seen his power. We have seen him. We are all sitting here today, not by chance. God has done things in all of our lives. Whether you believe him in him or not, God has had you and he has done miracles in your life. And yet so many times we still choose to put other things over him. God desires a people who are willing to pursue him wholeheartedly, who want to worship him in spirit and truth, who want to come before him and say, God, I don't have it all together. I'd, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need you. I need you. And I believe that that's what the Philistines should have done, that have said, actually, we've made a mistake. God, we need you. But yet that's not what they did. They continued going in their own way. And so much so they said, how can we get rid of the presence of God? We don't want him here. Because we know that his hand is heavy on us. But God wanted their hearts, but they just went willing to give him it. And God asks today for our hearts and our worship. Our God is a jealous God, and he loves you, and he wants you. He wants your whole life, not just the little bit we're sometimes willing to give him. 
I found this really interesting quote um, by Donna Patrick when she was talking about a devotion about worship, when she said, when we come before God in worship, not just coming to church and singing on a Sunday, but in true worship, we must see that it, that we bring a clean heart before him. The psalmist said, only those who have clean hands and a pure heart may stand in his holy place. True worship requires total surrender on our part. It requires total focus on God and his worth, his majesty and his power. Worship requires a total connected heart and surrender of ourselves. I don't know about you, but when was the last time you came before God in that stance? I know for myself, it's, it's something that, you know, life can get busy. I'm back to work and have a child and, you know, there are so many excuses that we can find to not come before God in that presence of worship, in repentance, in an awareness and need for him. A heart of repentance is needed when we come before God in true worship, an awareness of our need for him. The Philistines didn't have the humility to acknowledge the fact that they were wrong. And so they just got rid of God. But God wants us. He desires us. He wants to know you. He wants your worship. So we're going to turn to chapter 6 and find out what happened. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistine called for the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel and do not send it back to him without a gift, by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you'll be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. And then if we skip to chapter 10, it says, so they did this. Sorry, verse 10. They took two such cows and hitched them to a cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord in the cart along with a chest containing the gold rats and the models of tumors, which was their guilt offering. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, the land of the Israelites, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then further on it says, The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beshemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up to from here? I think, firstly, what I find quite interesting is that the Philistines send back the ark of the God because they want rid of it. They know that they've done something wrong in stealing it in the first place. And then, secondly, not turning to God. And so they say, right, let's get rid of this. Let's send it back to where it came from. We don't want this anymore. But they send back a guilt offering because they know that they've messed up, I guess. But instead of coming to God in a place of, God, forgive us, they just say, no, here's some gifts. We're good, right? 
it reminds me of the time when I was growing up and I have two younger siblings and being the eldest, I felt like I could get away with a lot more. And if my siblings, I often maybe steal something from them or use something and they go, I'm going to tell mom. And I go, no, 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 I'll give it to you. I'll, 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 give you, I'll give you extra chocolate or I'll give you my extra pocket money. Anything to not get into trouble. I feel like that was the stance that the Philistines took. That they knew that the God of their Israelites was powerful, but yet they didn't want him anymore. So here, here's some gold. Go back to where you came from. We don't want anything to do with you. What a chance they missed out on. They could have had the God of the Israelites as their God. But yet, no, we don't want you. But how do we respond? Just here, we read further on, sorry, um, that when the Ark of the Covenant came back into, Israel, into Israel's land and the Levites, um, they received um, the, the car of gold, but the Ark of the Covenant. And I can only imagine that they're jubilant. They'd spent seven months without the presence of God. I can only assume in despair. They'd also lost their leader, Eli. He'd, he died when, when he found out that the, um, that the Ark had been stolen. So I'd imagine there was a bit of hope. Yes, the presence of God is back. Amazing. And you think at this point there would have been a change of heart. Okay, like let's change our ways. Let's be reverent towards God. Let's acknowledge the fact that he is king, that he is worth our worship, and that he is holy. But no, instead they say, let's have a little peek. Let's have a little look in the Ark of the Covenant. And if we look back in Exodus, God gives so many instructions regarding the ark and that actually only priests would be able to go in um, into the presence of God. And there was sacrifices and so many rituals that needed to have been done for them to be able to come before the presence of God. Yet these Levites had completely forgotten just who God was and peeked into the ark of the covenant as if it was just a Christmas present that you were trying to, to look into. There was no reverence. There was no acknowledgement of God's holiness. And yet we see what happens, that God's hand was heavy on them and it struck numerous of them down. Yet I want to ask you today, what is our stance before the holies of holy? We no longer have to depend on the ark to be able to access God or on a priest to go and mediate that for us. We get access to the presence of God directly because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he was the ultimate sacrifice, because he was the ultimate spotless lamb that was slain, and he tore that veil that we could have access into the holy presence of God. But how do we come into God's presence? Do we come into his presence willy-nilly thinking, you know what, we have grace, we're good. Here, God, here I am. How are you doing? And I think sometimes that is our stance. But actually, we need to remember that God is holy. And not just holy in the sense of good, but he is powerful and holy. And he sits on high enthroned and we get the privilege of coming before him. But how often do we come with our hearts full of, of sin, our hearts full of just dirt, <laughs> God forgives, and that is a gift in itself, but we are also called to repent, to come before him, confessing our desperate need for him, that yes, we mess up daily. Oh my goodness, do we mess up? But we have forgiveness. 
God wants us to acknowledge him as the God who is holy, the God who is worthy to be worshipped. We must come and treat him as he deserves in awe and in reverence of his presence. But I'm just grateful that even when we don't, that even when we just come before him saying, God, ah, he just knows. That he knows our hearts, that he knows our needs, and that he forgives. He forgives us even before we've repented of our sin. He forgives us. But yet he still wants us to acknowledge our need for him. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. He gets all his inheritance and he goes off and blows it all off on women and booze. And then he realizes once he spent all his money, oh, what do I do now? The only thing he knows how to do is to come back to his father. But he comes back to him, his tail between his legs, in knowledge of how, one, he's messed up, but two, how he needs his father. And what I love about this is that the father doesn't come to meet him with a finger saying, you shouldn't have done that. But he runs to him in the distance with a, a cloak, a robe, and a ring saying, my son, I'm so glad you're back. And that's how God welcomes us today into his arms. But yet, he also requires us to come to him and saying, God, forgive me. I need you. So... I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. Get there? My hands are really cold. Is anybody else really cold? I'm just, maybe just nerves. <laughs> so Hebrew 9, 11 says the following. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made of human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. So obtaining eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and of ashes of the heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus paid it all. And like the, unlike the Israelites, we don't have to come before him with sacrifices. We don't have to... to to sacrifice um, innocent animals to, and sprinkle their blood on the mercy seat to get that forgiveness. We are granted that because of what Jesus did on the cross. We have access to worship God and to enter into his holy presence. But God doesn't leave it just there that, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we are called to worship. But God wants to use you and me for his glory as Ian spoke last week, God wants us to glorify his name and not ourselves. God's grace is available for us today because of the price Jesus paid. That while we are still sinners, God died for us.
God gave us his best in Jesus. He was willing to give his only begotten son for you. And Jesus was willing, despite probably having moments of not wanting to, go to the cross and die a painful death in our place. He was willing. I believe that God is calling us as the church to say, God, we are willing. Phil preached brilliantly in this a couple of weeks ago. And he urged us to say, here I am, God. God wants to use us for his glory. Just like we'll see in a few um, chapters coming up in, in 1 Samuel, Samuel himself, we haven't heard about him for a couple of weeks, but God uses him to stand for him in contrast to the corruption of the priests. And I believe that God is calling his church in the season to stand in a stance of worship and surrender before God in contrast to what the world is telling us. The world tells us to live for ourselves. The world tells us to fulfill your dreams. The world tells us to do you. But that's not what God is calling us to. So I believe that today, God is wanting us to say, God, here I am. Use me. I want to live a life of worship and surrender to you. Because what Jesus paid on that cross, we get the freedom of coming into his presence. But we don't just get access to God. We get to get be used by God. As we see in the story earlier on that God glorified himself and he didn't use men for that. So he doesn't need us, but he wants us. So I urge you today to ask yourself, where is your worship? Where is your heart? And are you willing to say, God, use me for your glory? I want to see Glasgow changed. I want to see my family changed. I want to see this world changed. And I want to see people worshiping you. I can't wait for the day where nations will come before God and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What a day that will be. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for the price that you paid, Father. Thank you that you were the spotless lamb that stood in our place, Lord Jesus, and that you paid the ultimate price so that we could live in freedom, so that we can access the presence of God, so that we can be made righteous before God because of your blood, Jesus. Father, today we just acknowledge our desperate need of you. But God, we need you. We need your presence. Father, and God, we just pr I just pray that you'll just be stirring our hearts today, Lord God, to turn to you, Lord God. Our devotion, our worship, our hearts, Lord God, let us be turned to you, Lord God. We need you, Jesus. We need more of you and less of us. We want your name to be glorified, Lord God, in this city. Thank you, God, for the price that you've paid. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you use people like me who, doesn't, who don't have the words, who stutter, who don't have it together, who's not a scholar, who doesn't know it all, God, but yet you still choose to use us. The little that we have, look, God, we bring to you and we ask, God, use us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.